Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of music, and in particular, the gift of truth. Words that are directly from Scripture, some that are drawn from the Holy Word. Truth that is designed to feed our very souls, to shape our thinking and understanding of life as you have created it, to shape our understanding of our sinfulness and our need of a Savior, to rescue our souls through that same truth that tells us Jesus lived and died and rose again the perfect sacrifice and substitute for us and the only substitute that could reconcile us to God. With all our hearts, we believe it, and with all our hearts, we sing it. Jesus, there is no one like you, no one else in all the universe who has loved us to the extent that you have loved us, no one else who could shed his blood and purchase our forgiveness and salvation. No one else who could conquer sin and death and the grave. No one else who could give us life eternal. Happily, we sing and say, there is no one else like you, Lord Jesus. We open the word this morning eager, hungry, Expecting your spirit to instruct us, teaching us this truth, because it is, it is not a matter of exercising our intellectual capacity, but these truths, as the Apostle Paul wrote, are spiritually discerned. And without your assistance, our eyes won't see it. And without your help, our ears won't hear it. Without your help, our wills will not move in obedience. And so as we open this word together, oh, Spirit of God, would you come and would you persuade us, even as Matt made mention just a moment ago, that we actually are worse sinners than we would ever want to admit. But in leading us to that conclusion that is fearful and overwhelming in and of itself, would you lead us beyond to the glorious truth that because there is no one else like Jesus Christ, He alone is the mighty Savior who can deliver us from all of that ugly sinfulness? Would you persuade us that His righteousness, His love, His grace, His mercy, His truth are all that we are in need of on this day? So, Holy Spirit, would you seal out of this room everything that would be a distraction and hindrance? And would you speak to our hearts So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these prayers we are offering are made in Your one great name, made because we have such deep needs, made because we have all our hope set in You. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10? If you're using one of the Bibles in the rack, seat rack under you, you'll find Mark 10 on page 846. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. So we had two messages looking at marriage because the Lord Jesus had given some instruction concerning divorce, 
And that's what we spent the last two weeks on. And, and Jesus directed us back to the beginning. His answer to the question of the Pharisees who were trying to lay a trap for him was not really what might justify a legitimate cause for divorce, because remember, in that context, they were trying to come up with, with a biblical justification for any little thing that annoyed them or troubled them about their wives. And Jesus takes them all the way back to the beginning and says, this is what God intended, making the male and female created a one singular union in order that they might be one flesh. I think it's interesting that on the heels of a very important question concerning marriage and divorce, Jesus now directs the conversation to children and their right place in the world. And so we're going to read this in just a moment, but I, I think it's helpful for us just to get our bearings a little bit as we consider God's Word together this morning. And, and note that uh, in our world today, there seems to be two extremes when it comes to the place of children. And at one end, you would have what I would say an undervaluing of children. They're neglected, they're abused, they're forgotten, they're forsaken. And present evidence points to a woeful caring and valuing of many children around the globe. Listen to some of these staggering numbers. Almost 70 million children will die before reaching their fifth birthday in the next decade. Children in sub-Saharan Africa are ten times more likely to die before their fifth birthday than children in high-income countries. Nine out of ten children living in extreme poverty will live in sub-Saharan Africa. More than 60 million primary school-aged children will not attend school anywhere. Some 750 million women will have been married as children. That's three-quarters of a billion child brides. One billion children presently are living in poverty. 22,000 children die each day, mostly due to that poverty. And preventable diseases like diarrhea and pneumonia take the lives of 2 million children a year because they are too poor to afford any kind of treatment. And the Guttmacher Institute estimates that between 2010 and 2014, approximately 56 million abortions occurred each year around the globe. All of that reminds us that children are undervalued. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum when it comes to this thing of, of parenting. At the other end of the spectrum is what I would call the idolizing of our children. And whether it's an effort to live our lives through them vicariously or to protect them from any kind of pain or hardship, we put them at the center of the universe. And we build our lives, our schedules, and our priorities around them. And we reinforce their inborn selfishness and self-centered thinking by telling them repeatedly, and I might add unfoundedly, that they are superstars, that they are geniuses, that they are amazing at everything they do. And when teachers, principals, coaches, and employers confront the problems and, and point out the character flaws, parents many times defend their children blindly and tell them that they've simply been misunderstood and that the teacher is the problem or the coach is the real issue or that 
there are other issues there. And so these children buy into the idea that the axis of the universe actually runs right through their bedroom. And they think that life is about them. And so at one end of the spectrum, there is this devaluing of the life of a child, and at the other end is an overvaluing of children. But you know, in Jesus, we see not only that there is a special place for children in His heart, but that this special place is actually defined and designated as a part, not the center, of His kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for children and their parents. And it really does put our world in its proper place. Now look at Mark 10 with me, if you will, please. Verse 13 says, They were bringing children to Him that He might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall enter it. And He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. It's a short portion, but it's a powerful portion. I want to give you a little bit of context here, but I also want to begin with a very simple point. Did you notice this? It's been true all the way through Mark. Who's at the center of the story? It's not the children, it's not the parents. It's not the disciples, it's Jesus. Now, we would take that for granted, and I will admit, even in my study and preparation for this, I was kind of taking that, and then it just hit me afresh last night. Like, that, that's a really important truth. It's, a, it's such an important truth that it actually begins to address what was problematic in Jesus' day, and it actually begins to address what's problematic in our day when it comes to this thing of parenting. Now, let's talk about Christ's setting. Children in Jesus' day were viewed as having a low status, and there may be various reasons for that. One historian says that children like women, and that would tie to those previous verses where it was the women, unfortunately, who were bearing the brunt uh, of that wicked and evil misinterpretation of God's Word concerning causes for divorce. Children like women derive their position in society primarily from their relationship to adult males. Sons, to be sure, were regarded as a blessing from God, but largely because they ensured the continuance of the family for another generation and increased its workforce. Childhood was typically regarded as an unavoidable interim between birth and adulthood, which a boy reached at age 13. One will search Jewish and early Christian literature in vain for sympathy toward the young comparable to that shown by Jesus. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that cultural perspective that says the worth of a child is actually tied, first of all, to his dad? Well, again, staring at that simple but profound truth on the screen of Jesus is the center of of the story, not just that in front of us, but of the story of the universe, if we put anybody else at the center, a dad, a male, or men in the culture, we are actually substituting 
someone else for Jesus. So I use this little image of a kind of a cartoonish character on the throne. And it raises the question of who's really at the center of your life, who's on the throne of your heart, you might say. There's only one person who has the right to occupy it. It's the same person who is the center of this story. So in this cultural context, though, the the male becomes the center of the story. He's king. And the value of children, though, is not located, according to Scripture, in their relationship to a parent or possessions, to society or education. So we would look at that and reject that. The value of a child is not tied directly to his dad or to the male population in Jesus' day. A child's value is found exclusively in relationship to Jesus Himself. And specifically, when you think in terms of what Christ would do on the cross, and we even refer to that circle of thorns as a crown of thorns, and it's a reminder to us that the the crown that Jesus wears, the crown of authority, came by way of suffering. And the value of children worldwide is tied directly to Christ as Creator and Christ as Savior. Now, this, for some of you, this may seem like, duh, but I would actually ask you to back up from that simplistic response and say, am, am I really believing that? And especially those of you who are parents. Is Jesus at the center of your life? Because before we can even talk about the kinds of truth that God does give parents, and dads in particular, to set in motion, to practice in the context of trying to Uh, of trying to rear disciples of Christ, children who would love Jesus, you've got to be a person himself or herself who is actually living for Jesus, that he's enthroned in your heart, that you're not living under this kind of illusion that you're in charge of your life or even that you're in charge of your children. So Jesus is the center of the story. Now, here's a second thought. He has the power to bless, and it's His alone. The ones who are bringing these children are doing so to Jesus exclusively. They're not even coming to the disciples saying, you know, you're so closely associated with Jesus, would you lay your hands on Him? It's Jesus that they want. Now, just by way of review, in Mark's gospel, Jesus has previously healed three children, and each of those accounts either says it clearly or indicates clearly that He's put His hands on them. So it's not surprising as Mark continues the story of Jesus to find that people are bringing children to him that he might touch them and bless them. And the term used here for children is of little ones. And as a matter of fact, if you, if you compare Luke's account of the same story, he uses a little different terminology, but he even refers to infants. So it's probably newborns right on through the, the toddler years. And you'll see it here as you come back to it that when Jesus takes them in his arms and blesses them, obviously they're small enough where he can scoop them up, hold them. And some of you may say, man, I I guess I'm too old to enjoy that kind of embrace. Uh, Yes and no. And hopefully I'll have time to talk about that a little bit later. So here they are bringing to him these little ones. This is an important point to remember in parenting and the discipleship of children because that's the ultimate goal, to get these little ones to Jesus. 
to get children of all ages to encounter Him, that they would come under His authoritative touch. And when Mark uses the terminology of the touch of Christ, he uses terminology that speaks of of Christ exerting a modifying influence on them. That is, there's something about them that needs to change, obviously for the good. Maybe some of these who are coming actually had physical illnesses that needed to be healed. Mark doesn't say that. He just uses terminology, though, that indicates that with the touch of Jesus, there is some kind of personal change or transformation that is going to result from this. In Mark 1, verse 41, the touch of Christ is an expression of His pity for the leper. And if you remember that story from many, many months ago now in this series, it resulted in the leper's complete healing and his complete spiritual cleansing. In chapter 8, it was the touch of Christ that was not only an expression of His personal concern for the blind man, but it resulted in the man seeing with perfect vision. And so here His touch is not only the display of His power, but also of His desire, His willingness to modify the situation and transform these little ones He is touching. And I I was thinking again, that's what every parent desires. Because sooner or later as parents, you come to the place of realizing you can't change your kids. It has to happen outside of ourselves. You can love them, you can discipline them, you can train them, you can teach them, you can appeal to them, you can reason with them, you can do all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, something has to happen in their hearts where they say yes to whatever the appeal is. And some of you have, you know, it's funny to, to we all, we, every parent has gone through this thing where you, you feel like, I, I was given a strong-willed child. That's the only kind of kids born in the world. <laughs> and when you realize they, they, re, they have this strong will that, that sometimes seems like it's made out of titanium. I mean, you can't bend it. You sure aren't going to break it. And, and you just feel like, what, what has happened And your first response is to look at your spouse and say, did they get this from you? (laughs) Now, and then you look in the mirror and go, I know exactly where this is coming from. And then you go through that phase of just feeling desperate. It's like, I don't know what to do. And you've tried all of the things that your mom told you, which you should, by the way. Your moms are wiser than you ever want to admit they know a ton about raising kids. And, and then you try all the stuff you've read in books, and even in this day and age, man, I, I, Kristen and I have said often that if, if Facebook and Instagram and all were in force when we were first starting out, it, it probably would have overwhelmed us, and Kristen has said that. So I'm, I'm sympathetic with some of you younger moms because everybody's got an idea of what you ought to do and how you ought to do it, right? And, and there is some of God's wisdom mingled in there. There's a lot of stupid stuff out there as well. But it, when you come to the place, though, of saying, you know what, more than anything, my child needs the touch of Jesus, well, well there you're, you're stepping through the right door. And my child doesn't just need the touch of Jesus, kind of a little sentimental, oh, bless your heart touch. No, my child needs to be transformed, modified from inside out, 
And then you begin thinking, too, my child, my child, first of all, needs to acknowledge that he or she really is a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. My child really is in, in need of this gift of eternal life. My child is in need of the daily grace that, uh, that over time will actually change them and, and grow them into likeness of Christ. And you start thinking gospel thoughts, then you're really on the right path. And while it was the physical need of Jairus' daughter that compelled him as a dad to come to Jesus, and as we read back in Mark 5, verse 23, he earnestly said, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. I thought, how many parents have come to Jesus and said, you know, my, my child is at the point of spiritual death. As a matter of fact, Ephesians is very sobering for us, and Paul wrote of this spiritual death and corruption when he said, of all of us, and this would even include our children, because they're just doing what we ourselves as parents have done, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's pretty grim, isn't it? And Paul goes on to say, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind, and by nature were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. A wise parent doesn't excuse those eruptions of sin and ugliness or doesn't doesn't deceive himself or herself into saying, well, it's just a phase they will grow out of. No, it's actually the evidence of a fallen nature. And yes, I know they can be so sweet, so funny, all those things, but inside is growing this monster. And unless they know the touch of Jesus, they are capable of the most horrific life choices. The great hope of every sinner is also the great hope of every parent. You say, what is that? Well, if you keep reading in Ephesians 2, you come to verse 4, where after describing this horrific status of those who were born in sin and live in sin and by nature are children of wrath, Paul then says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, And then he goes on to describe that he can and will make dead people alive together with Christ and begin that total transformation. Our children don't simply need to know about Jesus. They need to encounter him and be transformed by him. And these children being brought to Christ are reminders to us as we read through Mark 10 of of our absolute need. Every single one of us has the absolute need of and dependence upon the mercy of God. Our sin is actually worse than we could ever want to imagine. And the condition resulting from that is more desperate than we want to admit. But at the same time, God is richer in mercy than you could ever imagine. And I love the passage from the book of Romans that says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Some of you struggle just day in and day out with that overwhelming guilt. And you look, you look in the rearview mirror and you see all kinds of horrific things and you feel such shame and guilt and your, your soul just cannot find rest or release from that. You need to look forward chiefly to the cross, because the outpouring of mercy would swallow up the vastness of your sin, as great as it is. 
And that's where we say, thank you, Lord. And what he did at the cross when his hands that here were hands that embraced little children and blessed them, but when he spread his hands willingly across that piece of wood, was nailed there, bled, and died. Those nail-pierced hands become the greatest source of blessing any person could ever experience. And his embrace at the cross is the greatest embrace you could ever know. How do you know why we sing, Jesus, there's no one like you? Because no one ever loved us. No one else ever loved us to this extent. All of us need the life-altering, soul-transforming touch of Jesus upon our lives. Now, let's take a closer look at Christ's powerful touch and go back to Mark 10 with me. And notice this. This is really, I, I love this. Jesus is actually the one guarding a place for children. Now, the disciples are the, are the ones who appear at this point, and they actually rebuke those who were coming. Rebuke is a strong word. It's a severe denunciation. One author writes of this, the disciples may have viewed the children as disruptive and as a distraction. After all, Jesus had more important things to do and more important people to meet. He did not have time for children, or so they thought. And while that's not in the text, I think that's reasonable, and their response is probably more a reflection of the time, right? Because we, we noted earlier through that historical uh, understanding that the value of children was attached to the men in the culture. And the men have some work to do. So, you know, get these little kids out of here, as it were. But Jesus, all through the Gospel of Mark, has actively loved the insignificant ones, hasn't he? He has actively loved the outcast, again, like the leper, the one who by his physical disease was also spiritually excluded from those from those meaningful uh, uh, gatherings of, of worship, excluded from personal relationship, Jesus goes to him and touches him and brings him near. We've seen Jesus deal with the woman who had the discharge of blood, spent all of her wealth trying to find a cure. She actually comes to Jesus and touches him first in faith, and he stops and he acknowledges her in front of the whole crowd and restores her. So we've seen Jesus bringing the insignificant ones near. And so whether it be the blind or the lame or the leprous or the outcasts or the women and now the children, we see a heart in Him that loves to make a place and even guards that place for the dependent ones. And that's what's so marvelous. Again, look at the text. At the text. There are several things about His reception or receiving the children that are quite remarkable. First of all, He defends them Mark says that he is indignant, that is, his soul is provoked by the inappropriate response of the disciples. One commentator writes, it covers both irritation at their failure to learn and repugnance at their attitude in itself. I would love to know what kind of nonverbal communication happened between Jesus and the disciples. We can read the words, but you wonder, was his brow furrowed a little bit? Was there a sternness that came across his face? Was the irritation and indignation evident? I'm sure it was, and that probably didn't feel good for Peter, James, and John and the rest of them to go, oh, wait, I think we stepped out of line here. That's because he loves these little ones, and they need to learn to love them too. And so then he opens the way for the children and says, this is a word of command, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. 
That is, don't act in such a way that would cut them off or prevent or restrain them or hinder them from coming. I was thinking just a little bit about how careless uh, parents can sometimes be when it comes to spiritual truth. We sometimes wonder, how, how was the faith lost along the way? There are at least two times in the course of, of, of human history where everybody on planet Earth had the truth. Everybody knew exactly who God was, what He was about, and what His plan was. The first was the Garden of Eden, right? And the second was after the flood, when Noah and his sons and daughters-in-law began to repopulate the earth. And in both situations, because sin also uh, entered the world, there's this corrupting of truth and corrupting of understanding, corrupting of faith to where if you read through those early chapters of Genesis, just before the flood, seven generations beyond Adam, they're not only are people who are denying God, but they defy Him, raise their fist against Him, sing songs about murder and lust and greed. And we think, how did the, the society deteriorate to this point? I'll tell you in part, because there were those along the way, who did not value God personally, and because they did not value God personally and worship Him and serve Him exclusively, they began to communicate a message, whether directly or indirectly, actively or passively, to the next generation, God doesn't matter. And you will teach far more to your children about God, who He is, His place in the world, by the way you live than the words you speak. That's sobering, isn't it? And Jesus says very clearly, do not hinder them. It has challenged me to think over the last several days, are there things that I say, that I do, that actually hinder my children from knowing God? Well, Jesus not only defends them and opens the way for them, but look at the next thing that happens he employs them as a teaching object. Now, he, he changes the subject just a little bit. To such belongs the kingdom of God, he says. And I'm struck again by the fact that it's not merely a truth that Jesus speaks, but that he speaks it as the king who possesses the authority to dictate who enters and who does not. He's the king of the kingdom. These little ones, these insignificant ones, the undervalued and dependent ones have a place in the kingdom because the king has reserved a place for them. And then he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Well, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? I found this word to be very helpful in my study this week. James Edwards writes, to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples. That is, they're the prime example of disciples, for only empty hands can be filled. What is a little child going to offer any of us, really? I remember years ago when 
we were first starting to have children, and I heard one of those reports that said, you know, it'll co- the average parent will spend a quarter of a million dollars to raise their child from birth to 18, and I just was like, what? I got four of them. It'd be cheaper to move to California. Man, kids are expensive. They do bring us joy, but they bring a fair amount of challenge and heartache along the way, and scary moments and but really what what does any child actually contribute there's a beautiful line in an old hymn nothing in my hands i bring simply to your cross i cling naked come to thee for dress helpless come to thee for grace That's what it means to come like a little child. You know, as parents, one of the sweet things, too, and and we are beyond the stage, sadly, but, you know, they bring that little artwork home. Some of your kids are working on it right now. They're coming to you after the service. Daddy, Mommy, Grandpa, Grandpa, look at what I did. Oh, sweetie, that is amazing. But it'll go in the refrigerator, won't it? I still have file folders for each of four of my kids where I've dropped some of those priceless pieces of art. I'm not counting to retire on the sale of any of those little pieces of art, am I? No, they're precious because those are my kids. But they really aren't contributions that make my life more substantial and you can't contribute to God's existence the religious crowd of Pharisees and Sadducees had been coming to Jesus with their hands full full of self-righteous works full of self-promoting zeal full of of self-exalting or self-protecting tradition they'll miss the kingdom because they won't come like little children with empty hands commentator William Lane writes that the kingdom of God belongs to children and to others like them who are of no apparent importance because God has willed to give it to them. That is why these children are to be given access to Jesus in whom the kingdom has drawn near. Unlike adults who do not want anything to be given to them, children are comparatively modest and unspoiled. The kingdom belongs to such as these because they receive it as a gift. And then these words on the screen, he continues, the ground of Jesus' surprising statement is not to be found in any subjective quality possessed by children, but rather in their objective humbleness and in the startling character of the grace of God who wills to give the kingdom to those who have no claim upon it. And that's the really good news about this kingdom. Again, you can't earn your way to the front of the line. You don't qualify yourself to be acknowledged or accepted by God. It is a free gift that flows out of His eternal, infinite, and perfect mercy. And then look again at the text. He took them in His arms, physically embraces them. Human touch is such a powerful thing. Studies demonstrate that there are benefits ranging from our health to our emotional and spiritual well-being that result from physical touch. Hugs are known to reduce stress, to reduce fear and pain. They protect against illness. 
They boost your heart health and generally make us happier. They even communicate things like gratitude and comfort, sadness and sympathy, acceptance and love. There's so much that, that happens just in the, in the physical embrace. But what does it say to the common person or even the neglected outsider of society when God himself, who has come in flesh, steps into everyday life and in that or seemingly ordinary moment, not merely reaches out a hand to touch and bless, but receives these little ones, these undervalued ones into his arms and holds them to his heart? This is God. Some of you wrestle with, how does God feel about me? Would you ever love someone like me? And here's your answer. But I've done so many terrible things. He knows that. I haven't done enough good things. Neither had they. But here he is, opening the way, guarding the place, extending his arms, and drawing these little insignificant, undervalued people to himself. That's good news for those of you who know you're not significant. You have no claim upon the kingdom, but the king stands before you and says, come, enter by faith. And then the last line, he blesses them, laying his hands on them. God the Son, in all likelihood, prayed over them because the word bless means to ask God on high, God the Father, for a blessing, for a favor, for his kindness to be bestowed. And the words are not recorded. It may have been one of the standard Old Testament blessings that were used in times of worship or the reciting of psalms and such, but his touch brought blessings. And it was, as James Edwards writes, a tangible expression of God's unconditional love for the unclean, foreigners, women, and children. Jesus' personal touch of common people became a distinguishing mark of His bearing and ministry, that is, of His person and His ministry. It also became an essential characteristic of the movement he founded, sparing it from the incipient hierarchy and elitism, whether professional or ascetic, so common of religion. Another gospel would have resulted, and not that of Jesus, and another church, rather than his church, had children been kept from Jesus and had Christianity been made into something for men alone. And so now we kind of come full circle. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's confronting the sinful thinking and the, the aberrant patterns in his culture and he's bringing the truth of his person and the glory of his gospel to bear upon the life of husbands and wives in the context of marriage and parents and children in the context of these verses in terms of society and how they would view and treat lepers and women with physical issues that can't be healed and right on through the line. And his arms, physically extended and open to the little insignificant ones here, have been open and extended to the insignificant outliers from the very start of Mark's gospel. No wonder he would say this is the record of the good news of the life and ministry of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. 
your parenting is so much more significant than just getting those kids from birth to 18, you know, without wrecking or ruining them or destroying the little world around you or getting them gainfully employed and, and out on their own. For a Christian mom and a Christian dad, it is about entrusting the gospel to them, getting them to the one who has the power to touch them and transform them and make them whole again, the one who has the power to set them on a course of life that will matter for eternity and not be lived in some kind of self-centered cocoon that at the end of the days will be a regret. This king is great and his power is amazing, and his love is astonishing. Next week, God willing, we'll look at some of the specific commands, but they have to be rooted and connected, tied into this great truth about who Jesus is and what's in his heart. Will you bow your heads with me, please? I want you to prayerfully meditate on this portion of Scripture for just a few minutes because he's not only correcting the idolatry of his age, he's actually correcting, addressing and correcting the idolatry in our hearts. And, and some of you, as a starting place, undervalue the little ones. They're more of an annoyance than anything else to you. And could I just call you under the authority of Christ and his word to repent? Some of you actually overvalue them. You've turned them into the idol You've built your world around your children or your grandchildren. Each of us needs to come to the place again right now where we say there's only one king in this story and there's only one king in the center of the universe and that is Jesus. Does he occupy the throne of your soul? Is he firmly seated there? God is not looking to populate his kingdom with the mighty and noble but with the weak and humble. But the good news is he has the power today to place his hand upon you and transform your present condition. He has the power to touch your life with a blessing that will create a new identity. And the sin and weakness that you feel defines you. The shame which you carry in your soul and appears in the mirror each morning as you dress for school or prepare for work. That unshakable sense of failure that drives you into the deepest of fears and despair. Jesus has the power and willingness to remove with the touch of his nail-pierced hands. And as we sang a little while ago, when he says come, the only response is, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of this dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. That is, there are 10,000 remedies for whatever ails you, for whatever makes your soul sick and your spirit overwhelmed. Some of you have been taught that you cannot be certain of God's forgiveness in this life. That it may take days or weeks or even many, many years before you will receive the assurance from the Lord that He has forgiven you. You've been told that the responsibility to work all that out and prove your forgiveness rests on you. And that, that is not the way Jesus describes it. Where He says to you today, right now, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And he means it right now. So he calls 
And our response is simply to come. Father, would you take these truths, press them to our hearts, press them to our hearts with the nail-pierced hands of our Savior. May we, may we feel the embrace of those nail-pierced hands and arms around us at this moment. May we hear his voice calling us out of our sin, out of our darkness, out of our confusion, out of our guilt and fear and despair. Lord Jesus, call, call us and embrace us. Accomplish your work, not simply so that our kids might be model children and our households might be exemplary. Oh, Lord God, heaven and hell is at stake. Eternity is in view. Save us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.